the 50th Annual Tony Awards. Sponsored by Cadillac and your Cadillac dealers, who remind you that the great performers are always creating a higher standard. All right. Hello. Welcome back to My Little Tonys. Welcome back. Last time we dove real deep on Rent. We're not going to go that hard this time. We have a lot of shows to brush on briefly and then just keep moving. Mm Mm-hmm. So in the, you know, talking about the scandals last time, we brushed on the issue of voter fraud that had been exposed. Part of the big hubbub around Best Musical is that, you know, they nominated two musicals, Chronicle of a Death Foretold and Swing It on a Star that were already closed. So it was kind of like how people, you know, aren't really supposed to vote for Best Musical until they've seen all of them. So this is a little article about, you know, all of that. In an impromptu survey this week of 17 voters, including producers and other theater people, 13 acknowledged that they had missed one or both of these Best Musical nominees, now long gone. The sampling may have been completely unscientific, but it was not random. Those surveyed included some of the most prominent people in the industry, people whose taste and judgment others rely on. Am I a bad boy? Asked one of the no-shows. He is if he votes. The Tony regulations require voters to certify that they have seen every show in a given category. Susan Shacoin, a spokeswoman for Chronicle, which ran for only 67 performances last summer, said that between 350 and 400 of the Tony voters had asked for tickets to the show. There are 720 Tony voters, most of them producers, which means hundreds of Tony voters never saw Graziella Danielle's musical adaptation of the novel by Gabriel Garcia Marquez. It's an open secret on Broadway that no one polices the voting. A person who has produced several Tony-winning shows said this week that his records revealed that no more than half of the eligible voters in the general Tony balloting had ever come to one of his shows. A former member of the Tony nominating committee, speaking on condition of anonymity, said that it was apparent over several years that even some nominators had not seen all the eligible productions. Of course, no one would ever say that because you were never allowed to say that, the former nominator said. Again, many people speaking anonymously. So, you know, I thought that was another, that's another little piece of the Tony puzzle of this season when everyone is kind of questioning the whole system of, you know, the importance of the Tonys. It's funny that a year where two of the shows are closed like is what causes that conversation to be had because I feel like I trust a Tony voter as far as I can throw him uh, <laughs> or them. I could very well imagine people not going to every show that they need to see. And it's like I do. I think with a chronicle of a death foretold, I can see the reasoning behind like nominating it after it has already closed just because of the nature of the show. But the Swingin' on a Star (laughs) review, it's like, come on. I mean, it got better reviews than Big or Victor Victoria. Yeah. So I can kind of understand it. So this sort of best musical showdown with the shows that were and were not nominated, I think it really is like there really is a dividing line between like the past and future of the musical where you have things like Rent and Noise slash Funk. Then you have something like like a new production of a Rodgers and Hammerstein like mid-century movie musical, a review based on the work of a composer who died in like the mid 1960s. It really is such a stark you know, you start to see these really stark divides in this era. Yeah, no, totally. Kind of like the mixed bag of what we have left. It is sort of, I think that things really do fall into like two different categories. Things that seem really adventurous and are also giving voice to people who aren't, you know, have had like a home on Broadway versus things that have just been recycled so many times that they kind of have this odd, off-putting uncanniness to them. Totally. And you know what's funny is that there was an article in the end of 1996 where um, 
William Goldman was talking about how Broadway was sort of starting to feel revitalized because of Rent, because of Bring in the Noise, and because of the revival of Chicago that just opened, mm-hmm. which is like interesting because now it's such a, it seems like such a Broadway mainstay and like kind of tired cycling all of these different stunt castings through it. But at the time, it was like blowing everybody's minds. Mm-hmm. It's helping to, quote, liberate Broadway stages from theme park culture, even as it erupts on the streets all around them. Yeah. Well, then now it kind of feels like the biggest theme park attraction is Chicago itself. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Apparently, like more than half, like maybe something like 75 to 80 percent of tickets for Chicago are purchased day of by tourists. It's that is crazy. Interesting. I mean, I remember the I haven't gotten TKTS a lot because I feel like they're actually very expensive. But the couple of times I have, it seemed like everyone around me was like a European tourist trying to buy a Chicago ticket. (laughs) So maybe let's get into bring into noise, bring into funk. And I think comparing it with Rent is interesting because it's like on one hand you have Rent, which is this like incredibly diverse cast, but also, you know, serving this like colorblind racial utopia that we kind of talked about last time where like people's ethnic background has really no impact on like how they experience the world. Whereas this is very much like this is a musical about the black experience and like everything that comes with it, which like I'm glad that it ended up being as successful as it is like from taking such a strong point of view that could potentially alienate like a, you know, primarily older white Broadway audience. Yeah, I think that on that note, one of the best things about this Tony ceremony is hearing so many old white people have to say bring in the noise, bring in the funk. 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 Bring in the noise, bring Bring in the funk. Here's a phrase you will never hear the Queen of England say, ladies and gentlemen, bring in the noise, bring in the funk. But you know who had a hard time with it that I was surprised by is Gregory Hines, who's like (laughs) Savion Glover's mentor. I bet that hurt his feelings a little bit that he did not get the name right. Savion Glover for bring on the noise, bring on the funk. So anyway, Bring Into Noise, Bring Into Funk opened April 25th, 1996, closed January 10th, 1999, after 1,135 performances. Book was by Reg E. Gaines, music by Daryl Waters, Zane Mark, and Anne Ducanet, lyrics by Reg E. Gaines, George C. Wolfe, and Anne Ducanet, based on an idea by George C. Wolfe and Savion Glover, conceived and directed by George C. Wolfe, and choreographed by Savion Glover. Bring Into Noise, Bring Into Funk is a musical review telling the story through tap of Black history from slavery to the present. The musical numbers are presented along with super titles, projected images, and videotapes with continuing commentary. So it was nominated for Best Musical, Best Book of a Musical, Best Score, Best Actor in a Musical for Savion Glover, Best Featured Actress in a Musical for Anne Ducanet, Best Costume Design, Best Lighting Design, Best Choreography, and Best Direction. And it won Best Featured Actress, Best Lighting Design, Best Choreography, and Best Direction of a Musical, which I think all, you know, that all sounds about right. Mm-hmm. So I'm interested to see now that you have come out as a tap hater, what do you have to I say I was actually yourself? going to say that this <laughs> is definitely... I'm into this. I think that this is so cool. And it's so much better than, in my opinion, it speaks to me so much more than the 42nd Street uh, revival performance. This is like a really interesting example from an interview that George, to like get a sense of like how, in what, how many different ways they're using tap. This is like from an interview with George Wolfe. One night I dreamed the guys who were playing the buckets in the shows were beating on the bottoms of Savian Glover's feet. 
I asked the production department at the public to rig up a bar structure so that Savion could hold on to it, lifting himself up so the guys could hit the taps of his shoes with their drumsticks. Seeing the bar, hearing the rhythms, I realized it was a chance to explore urban industrialization, how rural rhythms got turned into industrial urban rhythms. I mean, they even go into this in the show where I think that they really dissect like the history of Hat Tap and like how it's, you know, was used in like movie musicals, but like thinking of a way to literally like take the idea of tap and like turn it on its head speaks way more to me than like 60 people's in lines like <laughs> no i i i get that a little bit of the backstory so Savion Glover was kind of like a tap prodigy he started working professionally at 12 when he was a replacement in the tap dance kid um, which I think we talked a little about in that episode and he and George Wolf got connected because Savion was in Jelly's Last Jam a few years earlier which um, George Wolf directed and like I think that the synthesis of Jelly's Last Jam was like sort of similar to this too where it was like George directed it, but kind of like conceived it. Yeah, and I think that's like part of his genius is that he like is also like a, an author of his shows. Mm-hmm. And this is talking about how like, you know, they basically started with like a bulletin board with like index cards tacked to it and sort of coming up with these different ideas really organically. And like the score, you know, so he had um, Reggie Gaines, who was a spoken word poet. He contributed the words you know they had the musical director and Anne Ducanet she's the only woman in the show and she plays all of these different incarnations of black womanhood throughout history um and she you know helped develop the music so it was and it's interesting because like it's a very you can tell it's a very visual show and it's a very unsatisfying cast album to listen to Mm -hmm. because it's like I mean they did record it live which is nice and you can like hear all the taps and all the energy but it is very kind of like an ambient sort of abstract soundscape more than like a Broadway score yeah I feel like thinking about I think that it's hard to subtract like a song or like a part of the show and like I don't think it really lends itself to like having a hit song from it in the way that like obviously Rent did you know I don't think that for better or worse that Noise Funk has like the same a calling card in the same way. And it is so linked to Savion Glover. Mm who is like you know this sort of freak of nature like incredible and there was actually an article about how physically taxing the dancing was and part of it was because Savion Glover is so good that everyone else was trying to like keep up with him and just getting injured there was a little quote from um, the orthopedist Dr. (laughs) Philip Bauman um, who is taking care of all of them the real problem is that Savion Glover is the best tap dancer in the world and when you have someone like that as the lead people push themselves beyond their limits to try and keep up with them he added it's unbelievable that Savion can continue. In one recent show, Mr. Glover did eight back handsprings into a back tuck. He almost killed himself, said Jimmy Tate, a fellow dancer. He was that far from the pit. (laughs) And he was only about 21 years old at the time, so still very young. And he actually left the show early because he was he was getting other offers first of all but also because it was so physically demanding Mm -hmm. yeah and like i guess as opposed to like something like a 42nd street like so much of the dancing requires them to have their knees bent yeah so in the book a history of african-american theater by errol g hill and james v hatch they had a good quote from george wolf about 
the origin of the title. Bring into noise, bring into funk. George C. Wolfe's history of black improvisational dance presented hip hop as the most recent avatar of black dance's phoenix-like rebirths. Funk, a word originally referring to body odor, over the years had ameliorated to mean a grassroots culture, a black ethos undiluted by European or middle-class tastes. Wolf described the show's title. The words noise and funk work in tandem with one another. Noise is the outlet, the release, the expression of self. Savion Glover dancing or Michael Jordan on the courts or some 16-year-old kid doing spoken word poetry. They're each bringing into noise. And funk is the texture, the history, the grit and grease that's churning underneath. For example, if Bessie Smith singing the blues is her bringing into noise, then slavery, lynchings, lost love, and oh, say, collard greens are some of the textures that make up the funk that's underneath. And in that same section in this book, they had a little aside um, about his background. When he was in college in 1976, he took a class with Angela Davis, and she wrote on one of his papers, which was a study of black stereotypes in film. I have read bad papers, good papers, even excellent ones. Beyond that, there are those rare instances when a student creates something of such insight and such beauty that I hesitate even to classify it as a paper. Your study, in my opinion, is one of those unique creations. Oh, that's amazing. I know. So it's very beautiful. It's funny because before he took on this role as this like playwright director force, he was like an actor and he's like, oh, I hated memorizing lines. But when <laughs> I would like read a play, I would like know how every line was read. Then I mm-hmm. kind of took that as an obvious cue. But like, it's so funny to me that the title that is given to him is like theater director because he's hearing what you just said and just kind of knowing his work it's like I think he's like a scholar in a very enlightened way totally the other black playwright or playwright in general who I think really speaks to this is probably Adrian Kennedy who um, Mm -hmm. you know I think has like a very similar style this is from the same interview I read from earlier when I would show people early versions of my writing I had all sorts of theatrical influences in my work everything from kabuki to comedia and people would say that this it wasn't a black play but I wasn't interested in three walls, a chair, a table, and suffering. I was interested in theatrical influences that had absolutely nothing to do with the definition of what somebody else, black or white, perceived my world to be. I had mm-hmm. a much more expansive and freer and messier definition of my world. My imagination was not defined nor limited to somebody else's definition of who I was. My imagination was beyond those boundaries. And so writing, bring into noise, bring into funk was an act of freeing myself. I love him. <laughs> when I was 13, my, my mother came to school in New York City to take some advanced degree work. And she gave me New York theater, Broadway. She died in December. Everything I ever do in this world that is about adventure and spirit and magic and curiosity. I owe to her and to my family. Thank you very much. Love you, Maretta. Yeah, and this was like kind of his era, but yeah. I think that it's been sort of funny to see how many times he has kind of gotten thwarted by like a big like this is the first of three instances where like he would have probably won the Tony in any other year besides the year that well he did win the Tony I mean the 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 show show win his show win best musical 
Yeah, yeah. Which, in, for all intents and purposes, is the Tony. No, it's true. <laughs> are you? Are the other two you're thinking of, Carolina Change and Shuffle, Shuffle Along? Along? Well, I mean, yeah. who knows what would have happened, but I think that they would have fared a lot better if they had premiered in seasons that weren't so stacked or, you know, had these kind of like media sensation shows. I don't know. I think this one is harder because it's like, if you compare this to something like Carolina Change, which has such a cult following around it, and I think it is because, you you know it's all sung through and you can experience it on the cast album whereas something like this you get maybe like 20 percent of the experience by listening to the cast mm-hmm. album so i think it's a really interesting example of like you know something like noise funk which had a successful run ran for three years but like isn't really in the conversation anymore versus something like carolina change which had an extremely short run but i think is now you know considered to be you know one of the modern american masterpieces of the theater and i think like putting on other productions of it if you don't have these like virtuosic tap dancers then it's not going to have the same impact it did tour though but Savion Glover toured with it really I believe he did yes he did so that's like you know the whole thing Mm -hmm. so you know what is crazy is that and I I mean I guess it does make sense that like I didn't find the actual complaints but Margot Jefferson references it in her review where people are like well what about white people (laughs) (laughs) so she writes I've read complaints in a few places that this show grounded in African American history has an outlook that is racially exclusionary I find that absurd real art is always ruthlessly specific it invites us to imagine a country a period a class or race or family of people very particular ways of acting thinking feeling, singing, dancing, gesturing that are beyond us in some way. And it asks us against all odds to sit there and experience everything from from shock and wonder to acute recognition, which is exactly what the audience at Bring Into Noise appeared to be doing. With this difference, they had real difficulty staying put in their seats. Like reading all the the reviews of this show, it makes sense that a more conventional musical like Rent bested it in sort of the big categories. But this one, it it like really makes me regret that it was, you know, just like a tiny bit before my time. Mm -hmm. It does feel like so singular in it that it's like, I just wonder what the process for like, you know, if there would ever be like a way to revive it. Well, I kind of wonder what Savion Glover is up to. Like, I think if he came back and like personally coached the cast and they did maybe not an encores but like a you know some sort of benefit concert like I think that would get a lot of love I just also like I think that it was like the history from the 17th century to like the current day but like the current day being you know 1995 like I wonder how that would like read now right because now you know 1995 is history especially with it not having like a traditional book does a show like this continue to live on if it like has some sort of like anthology element to it where people are adding and you know subtracting things and oh that would be interesting if they like maybe came back and did another added maybe another chunk to it like a more modern chunk i think chunk is like the best way to really kind of like (laughs) describe how like i think that it's funny for like musicals that don't have like a traditional linear plot you just hear people say the same thing over and over about them where it's like you know i feel like people say that about like follies too where it's like the plot list you know yeah it's like it may not have like a plot in the traditional sense but it has like a structure that i feel like when something doesn't have a plot it's kind of like put in square scare quotes of like right i feel like it's plotlessness it really only affects it it's life like as a cast album Mm -hmm. where it's you know if you can't just sort of follow the plot and actually you can follow the plot it's just you're missing like a huge chunk of it so 
One more thing, you know, again, talking about like putting it together and and calling it what they did. The music in tap or the beat as Mr. Wolf and Mr. Glover named it while putting together Bring Into Noise is a metaphor for the serious part of the art that is linked to the origins of jazz and the hidden immense contribution of the African diaspora to the American metabolism. How that tap beat might have been born in slave days, how it merged with mainstream culture and then got submerged in it through segregated stage shows and Hollywood's casual racism, how the beat languished in inner cities like Harlem and was found again in Mr. Glover's generation. This is the story of the show. So I think it is interesting, like looking at something like 42nd Street and then looking at this, which is really like reclaiming tap as like a black art form. This does feel like it's sort of in conversation with a show like that. That is so like lily white Mm -hmm. generally in ben brantley's review he kind of i guess like alludes to how all the busby berkeley musicals were like about the great depression and like Mm -hmm. were socially relevant at the time i think to see tap dance be packaged in that form on film in the 30s to being put into something like 42nd street which feels like it has little if any social significance to it and then like see something like ndoy's funk that is totally this is like serious and like has social meaning to it the passage from the Brantley review which I thought was very good sometimes you're not fully aware of a vacuum until it has been filled for years now the Broadway musical slate has been dominated by revivals and pastiche operettas attending them was like visiting a pop museum a perfectly pleasant experience but underlined with a sense of detachment they usually had very little to do with the world outside the theater Yet, the best American musicals of both stage and screen have seldom been just slices of chipper escapism. They have also persistently struck, both directly and subliminally, chords of concern with which their audience would be very familiar. Consider a list as varied as West Side Story, the Busby Berkeley movies of the Great Depression, and the sentimental Rodgers and Hammerstein musicals of the 1940s and 50s. These all, in their ways, addressed the fears and anxieties of their times about urban tensions, poverty, the losses of war and the disorientation of the succeeding boom years then recast them in forms that found sense and affirmation through the rhythms of music and dance noise funk restores that link it does also feel like it's in conversation with you know the tap dance kid which is fitting because like i know that when we talked about it i think we were both kind of surprised by how much social commentary there was in it about the role of the stereotype of sort of like the shuffling smiling black tap entertainer and how like his father didn't want him to get into it because he felt like he would be degrading himself for white audiences seeing this show on a continuum with that show like I think it's sort of interesting looking at them together Mm -hmm. because I think this also maybe like presses even further into examining those stereotypes and like how they came about and like how to kind of reclaim them and draw power from them yeah no totally and I think that I feel like the tap dance kid feels like it's playing by the rule book like the musical theater rule book a little more but I guess it's like kind of interesting to see this as kind of going back to like these black reviews that you know were so popular in the 60s and 70s yeah and like also you know developing it around the talents of the cast george wolf talks about like being inspired by each cast member like with you know whatever segments they came up with yeah and one thing is that reggie Gaines was originally performing like what he had written but i think when they moved to broadway jeffrey wright was brought in to 
kind of take over and based on everyone's reviews they were like ultimately that was like a you know it it made it even his words even more powerful and yeah that was sort of the one like in the the off-broadway reviews they were like the one thing is that reggie Gaines is not really on the level of everyone else especially because like i think that this is the type of show where these performers are jumping through history there's so much required of you that i feel like you have to like really be a performer to like succeed totally i will say that i feel like the tony performance might have sold it a little short i agree i think i mean i think they went with kind of the safe choice like they went with one of the less inflammatory segments maybe (laughs) i don't know i think they could have gone out there and shocked everyone Mm -hmm. this one i think was a little i mean it was great like i don't know like there's not a ton of footage available from the show and most of it is the same like taxi segment and like listening to the album it made me wish that there were more of these other segments available because i would really like to to know you know it's like when you're listening and you're like what is happening why really mm-hmm. if there's a boo like floating around i couldn't find it but i would like to see that yeah <laughs> bring it Next up, so then the next two, we have the ones we talked about that already closed. You've seen Rent, and you've heard Denoise and Defunk. Our other two shows in the best musical category have unfortunately closed, and because of time, we've combined the cast, so here is Swingin' on a Death Foretold. <laughs> First up, we have Chronicle of a Death Foretold, which opened on June 15th. 1995 and closed on July 16th, 1995, after 37 performances. Conceived by Graziella Danielle, based on the novel by Gabriel Garcia Marquez, book adapted by Danielle and Jim Lewis, music by Bob Telson, additional material by Michael John Lacusa, directed and choreographed by Graziella Danielle. In a small town in South America, a newly married man rejects his young bride when he discovers that she is not a virgin. She returns to her family home, where they make her reveal her lover. She names Santiago, the best friend of her brothers, who is actually innocent. They are determined to avenge the family honor by killing their best friend, a death foretold. So this ran for almost less than a month and it closed it closed almost a year before the tonys happened (laughs) so it was only nominated for three tonys it was nominated for best musical best book of a musical and best choreography but honestly i think it makes sense to sort of talk about it next to noise funk because i do think that you know this with noise funk and uh you know maybe even something like contact it's like there are these these very like dance focused Broadway shows of the era. And I think, you know, people said it was closer to a performance piece than a traditional Broadway musical. I think it was only about 80 minutes long. Tanya Pinkins was in it. Margot Jefferson said, I can't abuse it vehemently, but I can't admire it either, (laughs) which I think kind of summed up the reaction they also said you know and i think that we've like talked about this before 
many times before that like adapting a novel is like a very <laughs> hard feat but like also adapting like a very experimental novel is like even harder yeah they just showed the press reels it looked you know it looked fun I mean not fun but it looked very dramatic and sexy and violent but I mean you know I think it's notable because it's an early collaboration of Graziella Danielle and Michael John Lacusa who would go on she would go on to direct and choreograph a few of his other shows going forward but I don't really know if there's much else to say about it beyond this I mean I think it's cool it sounds cool it's sort of an oddity I think Mm -hmm. in this year but you know what is funny is if you search YouTube for clips of it what comes up is a lot of people doing like high school English projects on the book and like filming their own reenactments of it Um, (laughs) (laughs) a classic English class assignment Yeah, so let's let's just keep it going. Yeah. <laughs> so next up, we have the last best musical nominee, Swinging on a Star, which opened October 22nd, 1995, closed January 13th, 1996, after 96 performances. Lyrics by Johnny Burke, book by Michael Leeds, music by Johnny Burke, Joe Bushkin, Errol Garner, Robert Haggard, Arthur Johnson, James Monaco, Harold Spina, and Jimmy Van Heusen. It was directed by Michael Leeds and choreographed by Kathleen Marshall and... It was only nominated for one Tony Award, and that is for Best Musical. That's kind of crazy. <laughs> I, I don't think that that happens very often. So a couple of things about this. So this is another one like a class act where I didn't realize this was so common, but Jimmy Burke's widow was the driving force behind this where he she was like, I don't feel like his work is appreciated enough. He wrote more than 500 songs in his lifetime and she sort of was his like archivist. She was like, this is going to happen. So um, this is kind of like a summation of his career. Mr. Burke was 55 when he had a fatal heart attack in his sleep. Although he was a Hollywood studio composer and wrote lyrics to the music of others, his most fertile time involved a partnership with Jimmy Van Hoos that spanned four decades from the 20s to the 50s. Mr. Van Heusen wrote the tunes and Mr. Burke was acclaimed, not just as a lyricist, but as a masterful weaver of words, a poet, a storyteller as well. He wrote of a cottage built of lilacs and laughter, of leftover dreams, of moonbeams carried home in a jar or preceded by polka dots. He imagined the feeling of love as misty. And in the Bob Hope, Bing Crosby, Dorothy Lamore Road series, he was inspired to one of popular music's most felicitous similes. Just like Webster's Dictionary, I'm Morocco-bound. Aww. And something that I thought, there were a couple of things that I think are interesting about this one. So this was like the first show that Kathleen Marshall choreographed as a solo choreographer. She had been working with her brother Rob for, you know, the past few years. And Ben Brantley called her a choreographer to watch, which is true. But also, <laughs> it made me wonder, where where is she? Where is Kathleen Marshall? Her last two Broadway shows were in 2016 and 2012. So she's like barely worked yeah. lately. So where is she? If anyone knows, call our tip line of email. Don't call it. Yeah, I didn't realize. And it's also funny because, you know, getting later into it, but Rob Marshall choreographed many of the other shows this year and kind of got a little backlash like was sort of having a fall from grace there was like a very funny article we'll get into it later but it's titled how quickly the hands that applaud can slap (laughs) (laughs) 
the reviews of this were like, I didn't think this was going to be good, but it totally won me over. It was sort of a throwback to the reviews that were popular before the book musical, where each performer really had a chance to be like a real individual, Mm -hmm. which I thought was cool. Brantley's review ended with a very funny line. Despite its subject and an odd second act tribute to Burke with recorded testimonials from Johnny Mathis, Lena Horne, and Doris Day, the lyrics do sometimes get lost. At the show's end, a teenager in the audience said triumphantly to a friend, I figured out what this was supposed to be about. It's a tribute to this guy. (laughs) Oh, well, you may not always know exactly why you're watching Swinging on a Star, but for the most part, it feels awfully good. Aw. Oh, it opened at this like small art center in uh, New Brunswick, New Jersey. And they were like, finally, like our only like claim to fame will be this like show that's gone to Broadway. (laughs) Yeah. So then it did like a very, they were mad that they had to do a really condensed they were like, there is no song in Swinging on a Star that we can do in under two minutes. But like the Swinging on a Star and Chronicle of a Death Foretold segments were like two minutes total. So I thought the um, performance did not really sell it either. But it's like, they don't need to sell it. It's already closed. Yeah. They're just raising awareness. <laughs> Would you like to swing on a star? Every moving all in a jar. And be better off than you are. You're going to be swinging on a star. And all the monkeys are in the zoo. So next up, we're going to sort of briefly give a rundown of all of the Shows that everyone was shocked did not get nominations. But in retrospect, it, <laughs> it kind of makes sense. I think it even made sense at the time. Yeah. I think the producers <laughs> were just mad. So Victor Victoria opened October 25th, 1995, closed July 27th, 1997, after 734 performances. Music by Henry Mancini, lyrics by Leslie Bercuse, book by Blake Edwards, directed by Blake Edwards, choreographed by Rob Marshall, based on the 1982 film of the same name. Victoria Grant, a down-and-out British soprano, struggles to find work in the nightclubs of 1930s Paris. While trying to scam a free meal, Grant meets cabaret performer Carol Toddy Todd, who comes up with an idea that will change everything. Acting as her manager, Toddy bills Grant as a male-female impersonator. When the nightclubs eat it up, the duo makes it big. Even a Chicago mobster is enamored with Grant. But keeping the truth a secret is no easy task. And as we mentioned, famously, the only Tony nomination was for Ms. Julie Andrews. But what I didn't realize is that Julie Andrews was actually personally a big investor in the show, which I think also explains her um, decision to boycott the Tonys. She got good reviews. The show did not get good reviews. And they especially were hard on Blake Edwards, where they were like, he's a great film director. And uh, on stage, he's still a great film director. It's also, yeah, I feel like Henry Mancini doesn't seem like my first choice for a music writer either. Although I have to say, even before I saw the movie, I was very obsessed with her performance of La Jazz Hot, just like watching the clip on YouTube over and over because it has a couple things. First of all, we have her belting which like you never really get to hear and also obviously the slide up the octave at the end is absolutely iconic when you play me let jazz hot baby hold my soul together don't know whether it's morning or night only know it's sounding right 
I found a very cute interview. They sent Charles Bush to interview her because he was also, you know, doing one like a classic you know, drag appearance at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, And they had a couple of funny exchanges. He asked, how involved have you been in the creative process? And she said, well, I do sleep with the director. (laughs) And he asked her why she's never played Peter Pan. um, And she said that her legs aren't good enough and you have to have really good legs to play Peter Pan. I mean, I think the only other thing that I have to say about it is that this was the show that led her, like the strain on her voice, led her to go get surgery in 1997 Um, to remove her nodules. But then she realized later that she didn't actually have nodules at all. Her um, vocal cords were just strained. And so she, you know, after that surgery, they botched it and she had permanent vocal damage and she ended up suing the doctors and they settled out of court for an undisclosed amount. So this was really the end of her. This was really her last hurrah. I wonder if she would have given up the Tony nomination if she had known that. Well, that's what I actually was going to wonder. And I don't know how couth it is to really say (laughs) this, but like, I wonder if she really, if she regrets this, it is kind of like a very alphabet moment. What do you mean? I, or it's kind of like a headstrong thing that (laughs) at the moment feels like it's wise to do, but, ultimately it's like i think for someone like her i wonder how much like awards matter but i also think that being able to be an egot while it they're just awards and it doesn't actually matter i mean i think it does you know cement your status in a certain way i mean she's she's an icon no matter what but i really think that like people kind of underestimate like the psychological damage that this did to her my conspiracy theory this is based on absolutely nothing except my own thoughts <laughs> but i think so there was you know a big hubbub when she they wrote like a cameo in the new mary poppins for her and she turned it down and angela lansbury ended up doing it instead and her excuse was like well i didn't want to overshadow emily blunt but my theory is that she actually is still really traumatized by this and like i think she felt like she would be triggered to kind of you know return to the scene of like one of her greatest triumphs mm-hmm. and be in sort of this lesser form that she is now like and like I think she's probably made peace with it like in her normal life but I mm-hmm. feel like you know just based on how I would feel in her position I would also turn it down because I feel like it would really upset me yeah well she does that children's show that I have no idea what the deal <laughs> with is and she was fabulous in the princess diaries yes and she did sing in the second one which with the uh, with oh, Raven, yeah. an iconic duet Will be honest and true me and prize your heart of gold the way I do. He'll know that that will be your crowning glory, your whole life through. Your love will see that it's your crowning glory, the most glorious part of you. I think that there are so many like backstage dramas about like my husband's the director and I'm the ingenue and like blah 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 but it is kind of funny to like think about this in the context of like people in their 60s. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I love it. So they didn't perform shockingly. They boycotted also, amazingly stacked cast. Rachel York and Tony Roberts are also both in this. Yeah, and you know, tough act to follow from the movie with uh, Robert Preston and mm-hmm. um, Leslie Ann Warren. Next up, State Fair. Also, before we get into this, I will say that I think that one of my favorite lyrics ever is, Our State Fair is the best state fair in the state. <laughs> <laughs> because one, it's 
incredibly dumb, but also <laughs> it is like Gertrude Stein level poetry. <laughs> so State Fair opened on March 27th, 1996 and closed on June 30th, 1996 after 110 performances. Music by Richard Rogers, lyrics by Oscar Hammerstein II, book by Tom Briggs and Louis Mattioli, directed by James Hammerstein and Randy Skinner, choreographed by Randy Skinner. A quick little synopsis, uh, originally based on Phil Strong's novel of the same name, Rogers and Hammerstein State Fair was the only musical they wrote directly for feature film. State Fair follows the Frank family's journey from their farm to the three-day 1946 Iowa State Fair. Ma and Pop are intent on winning prizes for their accomplishments in hog raising and mincemeat cooking, while their children, Margie and Wayne, have romantic adventures ahead of them. So, I guess the most interesting thing about this for me is that it had a very, very long pre-Broadway tour. It went to, you know, Omaha, it went to Des Moines, it went to San Francisco. We have an article from uh, the Salt Lake City uh, newspaper, <laughs> the Deseret Times. And there was actually a funny, there was a, an interesting article about it in the New York Times where they talk about how, like, the producers ultimately we're kind of like, does it even make financial sense to bring it to Broadway? Like, it's going to be a lot more expensive to run it on Broadway than it was on the road. And they were kind of like, ultimately, we're sort of in a jam because we've been like selling this tour as like the pre-Broadway tour. And if Mm -hmm. they don't end up going to Broadway, that's going to like burn their bridges with all of these other, with all of these like houses that they are um, producing it in, which I thought was kind of like an interesting element to this. It was a seventh month tour. It was like a really big... Thing. Yeah. And like financially, I think they made a lot of money on it. Well, they lost it. <laughs> they lost <laughs> a bunch on Broadway. But um, I thought, you know, they said that they played, you know, side note, they played at Wolf Trap in Virginia, which is like a really cool outdoor venue there that always was very scary to me as a child because of the name. Yeah. But there, are, there are no wolves involved. And so I think the biggest songs that came out of this were It Might As Well Be Spring and A Grand Night for Singing. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were, you and I were talking earlier about how we both love and hate Andrea McArdle's version on this. It's on this really, it's really something. It's um, strange. It's, I mean, I think it's because like I really love the the version from the original soundtrack, which is very kind of low key, like low energy and jazzy. I'm as restless as a willow in a windstorm. I'm as jumpy as a puppet on a string. I'd say that I had spring fever, but I know it isn't spring. And it's very weird to hear it, like, so belted, I guess. Yeah. But, you know, it's still kind of fun. I am starry-eyed and vaguely discontented. Like a nightingale without a song to sing Oh, why should I have spring fever When it isn't even spring Yeah, and this was Donna McKechnie's return to Broadway after a pretty long absence. And I think that that's really a lot of it. Yeah, I think, and they, they did a little bit on the Tonys. It's funny because, like, I don't, for me, I was expecting the score to be, 
Well, I was expecting it to be bad. I wasn't expecting to enjoy it in the way that I did. It was a really fun listen. So you endorse uh, the cast album? I actually, against all odds, (laughs) (laughs) I really do. I feel like for me, it harkens back to like a more Rodgers and Hart style. uh, Or I think like songs that I like associate more with Rodgers and Hart than I do with other Rodgers and Hammerstein fair. And um, funny enough, Savion Glover and Donna McKechnie won the Fred Astaire award that year for best dancer love it 95 96 season what a combo that's I a dream threesome for you <laughs> yeah Okay, so last last up for the musicals, we have Big, one of the most expensive flops of all time at that point. Yeah. So Big opened April 28th, 1996, closed October 13th, 1996 after 193 performances. Music by David Shire, lyrics by Richard Maltby Jr., book by John Wideman, directed by Mike Ockrent, choreographed by Susan Stroman. And it's based on the 1988 movie of the same name starring tom hanks and the synopsis is josh baskin is sick of being an awkward kid at a carnival he makes a wish to the zoltar machine to become big to his shock his wish is granted after an understandably awkward beginning josh is forced to do adult things like getting a job and a girlfriend in the end he discovers that there's much more to being an adult than he bargained for and learns that we must all grow up at our own pace in our own time so my what for this year is that so the original idea for this musical came from Dee Dee Khan, best known as Frenchie in the movie of Greece, because she is married to David Shire. And oh my God. She, yeah. And she like, I guess, rented the video and watched it. And she was like, hey, what do you think of this as a musical? And he was like, no, you know, we couldn't get the rights. But then he was like, unless... So then that started the ball rolling. Well, it's funny because John Weedman in an interview says, the impulse to do that musical came from David and Richard. I initially didn't think it was a good idea. Not only is it a famous movie with a star performance in it, but it was done beautifully. The film was a completely finished piece of work as far as I was concerned, and I didn't see a reason to do it over. But I really wanted to work with them, and they went away and wrote a really good song that made me think. There's an emotional approach to to this that music will provide that will make telling the story again worth doing and make it effective. So we went ahead and tried it. And well, should have should have <laughs> trusted that first instinct there. Yeah. So this there was a big article about how it flopped, or there were a couple of articles. This was from one about you know, as you may have guessed by like the idea coming in 1989. This show they were working on it for a long time, and they had to do a big revision of it after it went out of town because. So FAO Schwartz was one of the big investors, and they're the center of the, the most famous scene in the movie. Um, and an earlier version of the show was basically like there was a lot of sort of integrated product placement with FAO Schwartz, and Variety basically like ripped them a new one, and so they ended up doing some rewrites. There was still, you know, a big tie-in with like 
big merchandise, big, big in both senses. <laughs> this show is another one that is incredibly hard to search for. Terrible SEO. Also, it's something that like the logo of it, even how many years later, it's just like so imprinted in my head. <laughs> the the uh, keyboard with the shoes. Yes. And the red letters. Yeah. So basically, the consensus was that, you know, and it, this is a very talented creative team, but the consensus was like they've all done much better work elsewhere. Mm-hmm. You quoted a little bit from this article in the last episode, but Mr. Friedberg blamed the controversy surrounding the 1996 Tony Awards for the death of Big, a splashy conventional song and dance musical based on the hit 1988 movie starring Tom Hanks. He said that the decision in May by members of the nominating committee for the Tonys to deny Big a nomination as best musical had effectively destroyed any chance the show had for building an audience. There's no question in my mind that that was the death knell of the show mr friedberg declared the tony nominations are very strange you don't have to win but if you're not nominated it says you're no good i felt the lack of the nomination for best musical was a catastrophic blow to us the minute i heard it was oh my god the show is not going to make it and it only we didn't say the nominations they got five yeah which isn't terrible so it got it was nominated for best book best score best actress for krista moore best featured actor for brett tabiesel tabasel and best choreography for our old friend Stro. And so you, you read the second, you read a part a little later where people were like, no, you know, it's not just the Tonys that will close a show. Like it's sort of a combination of everything. I wonder too, this was like another score that I ended up really liking listening to the cast recording of, albeit I was listening to the London cast recording. But yeah, I just like wonder it was like too soon. I wonder if it, what legs it would have now. Well, you know, it's interesting because it is in some ways like it feels like it was sort of ahead of the curve with adapting these like nostalgic 80s musicals. Although, you know, it wasn't at that point, it was like a contemporary movie, especially when they started. Mm -hmm. But it it was just actually revived this past fall in England and it got very negative reviews. I read a review in The Guardian that called it soulless, flat, insipid and uptight. So maybe it's not just like a matter of needing time to kind of redeem it. Also, a really interesting thing that I learned in doing research for this episode is that when George Wolfe was like fresh out of grad school, he like observed uh, Shire and Maltby working on Baby. And that's like how he he was like, that was like one of the experiences that really helped me learn how to like write a musical. So it's funny to like see (laughs) them at this junction at this season where they're like big making like the biggest flop ever and he's like had this huge success i know you know it really it's an unpredictable business if we've learned anything it's that you can't predict anything yeah that, that actually ties into like the lead on the story um one of the stories about the creation of it which was in an uncertain world big operates on one certainty audiences know the story and they like it which (laughs) i think has been proven time and time again is not enough to uh get a musical running yeah i think that this like idea of like was it done well enough or like what are you, what's going to come out of adapting it is like the right mindset to have. And I think that like an important element too of it is like a star making performance. It's like these movies become so identified with their stars that like what is the real idea behind doing it? Yeah. Money. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
Okay, should we move on to Tim's play corner? Yeah, let's do it. So I would say the two plays of note this year were A Delicate Balance, which was written by Edward Albee. It had a kind of short run. It opened on April 21st, 1996 and closed September 29th, 1996 after 185 performances. So this was like a Edward Albee play that had not been seen on Broadway for 30 years. Since our very first episode. Yeah, exactly. And it was, I think, in the last episode we talked about how he had not won the Pulitzer Prize for Virginia Woolf, but this did uh, signify his first Pulitzer Prize win. And like, I think that what was sort of noteworthy of this production that was flavored by me just finishing reading her biography is that Elaine Stritch starred as, or had the supporting role of Claire, who is an alcoholic wasp who provides uh, commentary throughout the evening. And I think that this was like a very uh, heavy, case of category fraud because Elaine, the role of Claire for the 1967 Tonys was considered a supporting role or a featured role but this year she and Rosemary Harris who were who was playing Agnes were both in Best Leading Actress and they both lost. There was like this cute little piece in the Times about questions for Elaine Stritch. Do you miss anything about the old days of Broadway? And she said, change is fine with me except for one thing. I would like to go back to out-of-town tryouts for six weeks before opening on Broadway. I don't feel comfortable opening a show even after 24 performances as we did in A Delicate Balance before the critics come in. I like more time so I really know what I'm doing. Does winning a Tony matter to you? I really train myself not to think about it when I'm trying to work on a part. It's not the answer to my life's ambitions. Well, it would certainly be a nice bonus under my tree. Well, she finally got her, uh, was it a special theatrical event, Tony, that she finally got? Yeah, which, it kind of sucks. You know, whatever it takes. Also, the play was, it was like a big hit. Everyone loved it. It was directed by Gerald Gutierrez, who was accused of enabling and giving Elaine special treatment uh, throughout the production and um, other members of the cast, including George uh, Grizzard, who was in the original production of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, were very annoyed by. I would give her special treatment, too. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So it won Best Revival of a Play uh, and Best Actor in a Play for Grizzard and... Both Stritch and Harris were nominated for Best Actress. Um, it was nominated for Best Scenic Design, which is funny because it takes place in like a just a living room, basically. <laughs> and Best Costume Design, which is also funny because they're just <laughs> dressed like wasps. <laughs> it's funny because the other big play of the year, Masterclass, kind of like having them be like two of the big like straight theater events of the century. Like they both have these larger than live life performances in them. But I think that like arguably a delicate balance is like a much better play. (laughs) But this is more much more of a star vehicle for, you know, a legendary performer. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. So Masterclass opened on November 5th, 1995, and it closed on June 29th, 1997, after 598 performances. It was written by Terrence McNally and featured various opera songs by our friend Puccini, Ever Hear of Rent, Verdi, and uh, Bellini, and it was directed by Leonard Foglia. The opera diva Maria Callas, a glamorous, commanding, larger-than-life, caustic, and surprisingly fun 
County pedagogue is holding a singing masterclass. Alternately dismayed and impressed by the students who parade before her, she retreats into recollections about her glories of her own life and career. Included in her musings are her younger years as an ugly duckling, her fierce hatred of her rivals, the unforgiving press that savaged her early performances, her triumph at La Scala, and her relationship with Aristotle Onassis. It culminates in a monologue about sacrifice taken in the name of art. So... I hope that when we die, someone uh, writes a play like dramatizing us recording this podcast. Yeah, well, that's kind of like the funny thing is that like, you know, at this time, uh, there were like all of these... Uh, <laughs> these uh, plays that people were writing kind of like dramatizing like these sort of like larger than life people in a theater season with an unusual number of celebrity biographies from a dead superstar like Maria Callas to an evolving historical figure like Richard Nixon the Schmendians of the world don't stand a chance but if you're looking for depth of character picasso einstein and callus don't deliver either some of the season's most talked about playwrights are depicting icons instead of people they are creating theater for the age of celebrity and the results are not always as narrow as that sounds the best of these works consciously toy with images sacrifice sacrificing depth but gaining breadth as they comment on their character's role in history and culture so yeah, and I think that it was a fun little romp. Um, watching the press clip, it seems like it was really fun. And yeah, uh, and you know, Zoe Caldwell just passed, and you know, people, a lot of people were passing around this performance as sort of the pinnacle of her career and her work. And uh, and actually, and so you know, fun fact. So Audra McDonald also in this production also won a Tony, and she her daughter is named Zoe after Zoe Caldwell. Oh, really? Yeah. So they had a really, uh, you know, obviously had a very important relationship. Yeah. I mean, I think that this being the year that Donna Murphy and Audra both won Tony's by default for just being fabulous. (laughs) I know. And I also think it is a little sneaky to have a play performance where you sing. (laughs) Yeah. You know, that feels like it's sort of, you know, overstepping the boundaries. You know, not everyone else can bring that to the table. And she also, you know, same for uh, for the Billie Holiday play, which was categorized as a play, but also, you know. It's basically a jukebox is, musical. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, category fraud all around. Not that we begrudge Audra any of her wins, obviously, but just a, something to think about. Well, and speaking of dramatizing this, it's like, you know, you have Terrence McNally and Edward Albee who had been romantically involved in the <laughs> 50s and like have kind of had these parallel careers their whole lives. Like it's kind of, so where's that play? <laughs> I know, you know, who's going to write that? Yeah. And then also you got, I think, other honorable mentions. I think this was the Broadway premiere of Sam Shepard's Buried Child. And I think that was kind of the question. Wasn't there a question about whether to call it a revival or not? Yeah, because it had, I think, yeah. Well, he had won the Pulitzer Prize for it in 1979. So it's kind of like... Okay, so that seems like... I mean, they did let it in best play, but it's like, really? 
Yeah. And then, you know, an August Wilson. The cool thing about August Wilson's, like, work doing uh, the Pittsburgh cycle is that, like, I feel like almost every single... It feels like we he gets a lot of good representation in the Tonys. He does, but very rarely gets rewarded. I think he's only won one, and he posthumously, you know... Jitney got the best revival in 2017, but I think his only Tony award is for Fences. Oh, wow. But yeah, I think that that kind of feels like it might be it. That's the corner. That's the corner. All right. I feel feel pretty good about that. Yeah. No, this feels for such a busy year that I think has changed theater history as we know it. I think that it kind of ties itself up rather nicely. I feel like Rent was like the big knot that we needed to untangle. Yeah. <laughs> Everything else like pretty reads pretty straightforwardly. Do you have a dream threesome? That was I There were a lot of very old people presenting. Exactly. <laughs> no, you know, no offense meant. What do I have? There weren't any that really jumped <laughs> out at me. I would like to have a twosome with Peter Gallagher. Yeah, no, Peter Gallagher is like my forever crush. <laughs> but also, ultimately, I would have to say probably Liza and Bernie. Yeah, <laughs> singing their offbeat song. I mean, Rob, uh, young, Robert Goulet actually age, age, ages pretty nicely. Yeah, you know, there were a lot of people up there who were looking very good. Was there anything bad for the Jews this year? <laughs> You know, I think Mark Cohen is bad for the Jews, <laughs> but uh, it's nothing we haven't brought on ourselves. Okay, so next next time, we got a good one coming up next. I think they're all good ones. Even the ones we don't think are going to be good ones usually end up being good ones. Yeah. But we're going to do 1978, which was Ain't Misbehaving, Dancing, a lot of apostrophes on the 20th century, <laughs> Runaways, and then we also had The Act... We had Timbuktu, the return of Miss Eartha Kitt. <laughs> um, we got some cool plays. Yeah, we're going to have all of our friends there. It's, you know, it's going to be great. You're going to love it. Maybe uh, this will be the year that the 70s, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I think the I think the Tonys are absolutely going to be bad. But I, think yeah. the, but I think the slate of shows is a very fun one. So I guess that's it. So you can... Email us at mylittletoniespodcast at gmail.com. You can become a patron at patreon.com slash mylittletonies. We got some fun perks. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at mylittletonies. And uh, we'll see you next time. This is kind of a side note, but do you think people know what Patreon is? Um, I don't know. I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> Patreon, maybe we didn't explain it. I think we were worried about having our Patreon episode be too long and maybe we aired on the side of not explaining enough. But basically, Patreon, you know, we uh, work a lot on this show. We don't do it professionally. And so we want to give the option if you are enjoying it, you can, um, you know, help financially support it in whatever way that you choose to. And we have different tiers for like a monthly subscription to supporting the show. Some of them have rewards. The only big ones are we do a newsletter about stuff we like, and then we're going to do bonus episodes for things that uh, we wouldn't normally cover on the podcast. Off-Broadway shows, early shows. Yeah, so that's there. You know, there are lots of things that you can give your money to that are important, that are more important than this. So we understand if you don't want to, but you know, the option is there if you got a little extra to go around to support something you like. Never hurt anybody. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So we'll see you next time. Yes. Goodbye. Bye. Good night and go see a Broadway show. 
travel provided by Continental Airlines. Now among the best in the business at getting you to your destination on time. Continental, it's more airline for your money.